I'm Matt. I'm Noel. I'm Ben. And we are Stuff They Don't Want You To Know. Each week we cover the latest and strangest in fringe science. Government cover-ups. Allegations of the paranormal and more. New episodes come out every Friday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And welcome to the second installment in our series on romantic comedies, a.k.a. rom-coms. That's right. This is our whole summer series, so strap on your seatbelts. I don't know. What's a good movie theater like? So... So silence get, your cell phones. Silence your phones. Although you're probably listening to this on your phone. True. So don't silence your phone. You could get some popcorn. Yeah. An oversized carbonated beverage, perhaps. Yeah. Let's all go to the lobby and start listening to episode two in our summer series. Uh, and this is when we we start diving into the tropes. Oh, yes. Of rom-coms. So because many there tropes. are so many tired tropes. And this first one that we're looking at is the one... That I feel is so common. It, and in so many different variations and themes across the decades of rom-coms that we have. And that is the independent, career-minded woman who won't be tamed, except she will, you know, as soon as she meets a man. Now, is she distinct from a career girl? Yeah. Well, career woman? And then there's the working girl. Ah, working girl. That's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah, working girl, Melanie Griffith. Oh, yeah. Who and we'll get to, of course. We will, of course, list her in our timeline of working women. So working girl, the movie, is about a working woman. Correct. Not to be confused with the trope of the working girl. Exactly. Gotcha. Layers. Yes. Hopefully all of our listeners are confused, <laughs> but eating popcorn. Yes. So oh, I know. I, I actually do. All right. I'm prepared for this episode because I ate some popcorn and some of it's in my teeth and it'll probably work itself out at like a really inopportune moment in the middle of this recording. I can't wait. Yeah. So you're just going to see me making real weird faces over here. Sorry. Uh, and listeners, when that happens, I'll be sure to describe them to you in detail. <laughs> so let's get into... The independent, career-focused, rom-com leading lady who doesn't need a man. At least she thinks she doesn't need a man. And, of course, I say need a man because all of the, you know, this entire genre is completely heterosexually focused. For the most part, we will have an episode, by the way, devoted to LGBT rom-coms. Yeah, and we'll also have uh, an episode later in the series dedicated to... Uh, rom-coms that focus on people of color because so many of the movies that we are going to be talking about feature white, I want to say heroines, but they're not so much heroines. They're like just leading women who need to be saved by a man. Yeah, straight white women. Yeah. Who are usually really bad at walking through uh, like revolving doors or going up or down escalators or, or just generally walking with things in their hands. Yeah, she might be a CEO, but she can't carry a cup of coffee to save her life. Oh, certainly not. Um, so in, in addition to being generally clumsy, what are some hallmarks of this trope? 
So basically, this is a woman character. She's focused on her career, and possibly she is so career-focused because she has previously been burned by love or emotion before in some way. Maybe she had a bad example of her parents growing up. Maybe she was burned by a boyfriend. Um, and she also views people who need love as weak. People tend to fear her. She's this scary, cold, witchy woman. But part of that is because she's just like a man. She acts like a man and she needs to be put in her place. Yeah. Um, so could you say, though, that she is kind of married to her job? I could say that indeed. And this trope, I mean, in a way, it's another form of a magical makeover because even though she, well, she does actually usually go through some kind of uh, wardrobe change out of her. Yes. Out of the pencil skirts and stilettos and into what gingham, some loose gingham or (laughs) something. Yes. Oh man. (laughs) I want to be that woman (laughs) in a gingham caftan. Um, But after she falls in love, whether she even knows it or not at the time, Suddenly she becomes more vulnerable, more stereotypically feminine and open to love. And she realizes that her priorities have been all All out of whack, Caroline. So wrong. She's been going for the corner office when she should have been going for the guy in the corner. Maybe office or just in the corner, (laughs) just like lurking. Who's the guy in the corner? (laughs) I don't know. Well, probably Harry Connick Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Based oh on based on this uh this genre. <laughs> Harry Connick Jr. or uh Ryan Reynolds. Okay, can I answer Ryan Reynolds right off the bat? Harry Connick Jr. makes me so angry. You all I, uh, this might not be your popcorn face, but <laughs> Caroline has a very raised eyebrow. Oh well I do. Uh I listen, I'm not in control of my eyebrows, okay? But Harry Connick Jr., I feel I literally feel like I've brought this up on the podcast before about how angry he makes me in Hope Floats with Sandra Bullock. Well, maybe I talked about it on our Facebook Live that, like, first of all, his neck really bothers me. But secondly, in Hope Floats, he, like, has to coerce her into being in a relationship with him and she's not ready. But anyway, so that's why I opt for Ryan Reynolds. But the message of these independent woman-led rom-coms not surprisingly, are that love and relationships are paramount, but also that women should know their place. And the key formula and driving force behind these plot lines, and we touched on this idea in our introductory episode, is the heteronormative battle of the sexes that depicts anxieties about women's changing roles in society, basically. And this results in a change, an evolution, not for the man, not for society, but just for the woman, because that's this this battle of the sexes allows her to become a, quote, better woman. And several of the rom-com scholars that we... <laughs> That we read for this episode, uh, address this idea, the, the almost drawing a line, such a distinct line between men and women and masculinity and femininity and what is appropriate in these gender cultures and how important that is to drive the conflict and drive the storyline. But that it has to resolve itself by these two people putting aside their personal interests. So the woman's 
marriage to her career, for instance, and joining with a man to form a long-term union. And this is crucial because, as Tamar Jeffers McDonald writes in her book, Romantic Comedy, Boy Meets Girl Meets Genre, the basic ideology the romantic comedy genre supports is the primary importance of the couple. So you've got the scary, cold, witchy career woman and like the you know, slightly looser, more creative man who comes in to save her and bring her around to his viewpoint. Um, and, and this has to happen. The, the battle of the sexes has to be solved and won by the man, uh, so that they can form this union because that's what romantic comedies are all about. Although, of course, we would be led to believe that the woman is really winning because she is romantically desirable and people will like her more. At the end of the film. And in a lot of ways, Caroline, reading all of these rom-com scholars, which I'm so glad exists. Yeah. Oh, me too. Oh, man. Rom-com scholarship is a real fun reading. It listeners. is. Um, what kept coming to mind, though, is how it reflects the workplace gender role tensions that have existed that we've talked about on the podcast a number of times ever since women first started entering like secretarial roles in mm-hmm. particular when you had the first man drain in the civil war <laughs> um you know those old civil war rom-coms <laughs> I was just, oh sorry i was busy picturing a man drain and just oh. like a big bathtub drain with all these men soldiers going down there it. they go <laughs> <laughs> um but once the civil war ends of course unlike world war ii where rosie the Riveter goes home, mm-hmm. you know, the women stayed in the office. And that's where you start to have all of these concerns about like, well, uh, single women are out of the home. They're having these jobs. They're making their own money. Uh, these men might be sexually attracted to them. Yeah. What's going on? We have never been able to leave those worries behind. No, never. We've never really been able to overcome it. And we got into sort of a great sparkling uh, adorable period with screwball romantic comedies, which we talked in depth about in our introductory episode. And, and that was a great moment to, to look at career women in movies. Um, because these women tended to be on equal footing, even if not literally in the workplace equal, they were still, uh, trading all of these sparkling witticisms with their male counterparts. But that isn't always true before, and it isn't always true after. But one big difference with the screwball genre of the 1930s especially is that a lot of those leading ladies who were subverting those gender roles were simply heiresses. They were wealthy women. They weren't necessarily like working women who were actively competing with men in the workplace. Yeah. Lots of layers. So many layers. You'll never watch Bridget Jones quite the same. Oh, I know. And yeah, I love that you bring up Bridget Jones because speaking about layers and Bridget Jones, it just makes me think of the see-through shirt she wears in the office. So fewer layers for it her. It actually made me think of her, uh, her Spanx-like underwear. Oh, yes. Yes. The worst layer, the tightest layer, of course. Um, but if we look not at Bridget Jones, who is a working, she's more of the working girl trope. Sure. But if we look more at the working woman who is the the witchy executive, she is Sandra Bullock in The Proposal. It's all about the classic taming of the shrew. Oh, yeah. That's that is that is the thread through all of this stuff. And there is a scholar who looks at shrews in history. Uh, this is Louise O. Vesvari, who wrote an analysis for the journal Comparative Literature and Culture, pointing to 
uh, the 16th century, uh, William Shakespeare. Oh. Yes, I yes. I've heard of him. Yeah, I think you ha- I think you have. Uh he was in the movie Shakespeare in Love. Oh, he's right. so cute. That's yeah, yeah, exactly with his little goatee. Um well so yeah, 16th century we get Kate who is the shrew needing the taming, but she is just part of a much larger and more in-depth and like centuries old a storytelling trope that's existed across cultures and across time. And apparently these stories were supposed to be really funny, but a lot of the examples that Vasvari cites, um, especially from like Eastern European literature are horrifying. The so taming violent. of the shrew usually involves a woman being beaten to the brink of death, often then wrapped in animal skins yeah, and beaten some more. And maybe beaten some more. And then uh possibly raped by her new husband. Yeah, and what's interesting, and I can't remember which film it is at the moment, but it's from the 30s, I believe, that has a variation on this whole taming of the shrew, like the old trope in storytelling, not literally taming of the shrew from Shakespeare. But this woman in this film marries a man and to like set her in her place he ends up almost starving her like but it's haha it's funny it's a it's a hilarious romp into a new relationship and and she's got to prove how cool she is prove her mettle by like putting up with like eating stale bread and cheese well at least that film did not also depict one other hallmark of <laughs> those classic shrew taming stories uh, that involved the husband torturing animals and usually cats in front of the wife. Yeah, so there's this one story from Eastern Europe that has the man, he's trying to teach his new wife a lesson. Oh, man. Here's how you take care of me, your husband, because I can't do anything and you're the wife, so you have to do everything. So he demands that the cat get him water to wash his hands. Well, you know what happens. So then he kills the cat because the cat doesn't bring him water. He demands the dog. Go bring him water to wash his hands. Kills the dog because the dog doesn't bring him water. Demands the horse. Bring him water to wash his hands. Kills the horse. Then turns to his wife and says, you bring me water to wash my hands. Well, and I hope that she then pulls a godfather move, leaves that horse (laughs) in his bed and gets out of there. I I don't think that's how it ended. Yeah, I don't think it is either. But at the heart of this narrative is those power dynamics between a married heterosexual couple. And as Vasvari writes, they, for centuries, these stories have reflected anxieties about insubordinate female behavior in a male-dominated marital system. And, of course, though, they end with the quote-unquote happy ending and atonement of the woman committing to that submissive and subordinate role. So if we look at a timeline of these characters in Hollywood starting in uh, the mid-1930s, there's this theme of uh, independence, a woman's independence being her ultimate foible, really. Mm -hmm. So if we go to 1935, we have Betty Davis starring in Front Page Woman, which the title, that sounds pretty cool, right? Front Page Woman? Yeah. Hello, she must be successful, right? Well, no, no, she's just a hapless gal reporter who really wants to impress her reporter boyfriend, 
who, of course, keeps undermining her because 1935. Uh, but she finally gets a scoop and proves her worth, despite the fact that she is a woman and her femininity makes her so hapless. So this would be more of an example, I guess, of a working girl, because it doesn't sound like she's cold. She's just bumbling. Yeah, but it is a great example of just showing, well, what are what are women doing in the workplace? So she's still that career woman. She's still pursuing that job outside of the home. But it's a great example of people <laughs> making the movie who were uncomfortable with an ambitious woman and had to show her as kind of stupid, which makes me think of Confessions of a Shopaholic. Oh, sorry. Isla Fisher. Right, right, right. And she is also that aspiring journalist or aspiring writer, but she's portrayed as like so stupid. Like she can't control her finances. She can't string a sentence together. She can't get her life together. And like love is the only thing that sets her straight finally. Well, of course. Yeah. But in between (laughs) those two, 1935 and whatever year that terrible movie was put out. We do have some good examples. Um, we talked about this movie in our last episode, uh, 1940s His Girl Friday with Rosalind Russell starring as Hildy. So this is an example of an ambitious career woman who was going to give up her career for a man, but she ends up with the right guy, Cary Grant, who also loves his own career in journalism, thanks to this falling in the screwball genre. Yeah, I mean, and I love His Girl Friday. I don't want to just uh, reiterate everything that I s- said last episode. Um, but this is, like you said, a positive example in this genre because Cary Grant knows how good Hildy is. Mm-hmm. And he can't stand, A, to see her with her bumbling fiancé, who's like, he's not good enough for her. But also, selfishly, he's like, she's... She's the best reporter I've got. I can't lose her. Yeah. So it allows her brilliance to shine. Yes. And I think that's probably the last best <laughs> example that we have in this timeline. Because uh, when you go to 1942's They All Kiss the Bride, starring Joan Crawford as MJ, uh, this movie was described in Variety in 1942 as, quote, another in the current Hollywood cycle of girl immersed in biz versus irresponsible male uh, movie. Uh, and this is part of what one scholar called the career woman cycle that sought to correct working women's masculine behaviors with love. So she's, you know, before she finds love, she has the severe hair and the, and the, you know, power suits. And to me, she looks great. And she's in charge. She's the boss lady. But this is clearly something that must be corrected. Well, and that's the same year that Catherine Hepburn's Woman of the Year comes out, which we're going to talk about in more detail in the second half of the podcast. But it also follows a very similar formula. Yeah, people are just not down with women remaining powerful. Uh, and jumping ahead, though, to 1977, this is when we get Annie Hall with Diane Keaton in the starring role. And her blossoming career drives a wedge between her and Alvy. Because she just doesn't need him anymore. And this is an example of the nervous romance genre that started to emerge around this time. Because keep in mind, too, like we we mentioned before in the last episode, that the 70s and 80s is when you start getting more people being like, oh, love, is it the solution to things? Does it really exist? But in the 80s, we do have the heyday of 
women in the workplace, like up to that point in time, like you have more women working outside the home than ever before. So this it seems like this is when you start to also have this ethos of can she have it all? Mm -hmm. That becomes the new question, not the thing in 1935 with Betty Davis's front page woman where it's like, obviously, women are ridiculous who want to (laughs) work. That's just a foolish notion. But now we've gotten to the point of like, all right, well, you got the shoulder pads. You've got the money, but can you get the man and the baby? Um, and one example from 1987 that I could barely get through was Broadcast News starring Holly Hunter as Jane. And I wanted to love it. I watched mm-hmm. it a while back and uh, I was <laughs> watching it with uh, my, my boo and he had to get up and leave because it was so ridiculous. I, yeah, it has been so long since I've seen it. What makes it, I literally, what makes it so uncomfortable? I think just the, the sheer tropishness uh, of it. Yeah. Um, Jane is the journalist at the center of a love triangle. She's ambitious, but of course, because she's so ambitious, she doesn't have much of a social life or success in love. And so it's that back and forth tension, but it all just, I don't, I don't know. Nothing, nothing felt very genuine about it. I to feel me. like, uh, I feel like when I was watching it, I do remember thinking, just let her work. Yeah. That, that was really the only thing I remember my, my impression being from that movie. Because then at the end, she ends up alone. I just remembered why I hated it. Why? She cries all the time. Oh. Holly Hunter's character cries like, 15 times in that movie. Um, and it was the strangest thing because you have her, yes, like super ambitious, um, but also in private, you know, she has this like feminine weakness. Listeners, I, I know that a lot of people love broadcast news, so I am so open to hearing uh, more positive reviews of it. But it was it was a tough one for me to get through. Well, I mean, a lot of those a lot of those movies are one that is not <sighs> from the same era. Uh, well, one that's not hard to get through for me, but it's from the same era is 1988's Working Girl. Melanie Griffith as Tess with sky high hair that she cuts off because she says, uh, a, I, you know what? A serious woman needs serious hair or something like that. And it's so that movie stars her and Sigourney Weaver and Harrison Ford. And so, Joan Cusack. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. It's like catnip for me. I love it. And what is so fabulous about this movie? Because there's like a whole lot of like uh Shakespearean drama going on, like deception and masquerade, like that whole thing. But Melanie Griffith is ambitious. She wants a better role for herself in the company than being a secretary. So she ends up, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spoil everything. I'll just the end. Um, but, you know, she ends up adopting this persona, wooing Harrison Ford, oh, who's so dreamy in that movie. Yeah, late oh. 80s Harrison Ford. Oh, my God. Because um, he's so impressed by her gumption and her smarts and abilities and, and probably her haircut. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, at the end, she is allowed not only allowed by the screenwriters to continue to be this career woman, but Harrison Ford literally packs her a lunch and tells her to, you know, have a great day. Oh, man. And that's wonderful because that is a time. Uh, well, when have we not been in a time of people being anxious about women working? But, like, this is totally a time, like, coming out of second wave feminism when you're starting to get 
feminism being an, a really ugly word and, oh, we're totally in post-feminism now, people. We don't need it anymore. Women are in the workplace. And people are so anxious about, you know, women being masculinized. But here is adorable Melanie Griffith being a badass in the workplace and getting the job and the man. And Sigourney Weaver just... Mm. Mm. Well, she flies into space, and that's how she became Ripley, actually, in, in the movie Alien. Little known fact. Little known Hollywood Hollywood fact. Um, so if we jump way forward to 2001, we see that things have changed. If we look at The Wedding Planner Ugh. starring J-Lo. I literally walked out of that movie. Really? Did you go see it in the theater? Yeah. <laughs> Mistake number one. Yeah. I was in high school. I was young and dumb. Although, as I confessed in our previous rom-com episode, I love a Matthew McConaughey rom-com. I find him charming. <laughs> he is charming. You know? Yeah, and that plot line, I literally, like, I don't even want to think about it. But, I mean, you know, she's super driven uh event planner, which is one of the careers that women are allowed to have in these new era rom-coms. Um, and, you know, she's she's wooed. Wooed, I tell you, by Matthew McConaughey. Same year, though, you get Vivica Fox starring in Two Can Play That Game. And she is this arrogant, game-playing woman who's finally put in her place when her boyfriend plays those games right back. And she's an example in a couple sources we read of... The sapphire stereotype, the domineering black woman who doesn't need a man, pushes them away. You know, she's upending gender norms of of needing a man to be the head of her household. And, oh, thank goodness, her boyfriend comes in to save the day and put her in her place. Yeah, the sapphire stereotype never ultimately elevates um, the woman in question, but is used to, like, subvert any of her actual intelligence and strength. Um, now, if we if we move in, in a take a sharp right turn from that to 2002's Sweet Home Alabama, we see this other common theme that um, that emerges in the 2000s of the escape to small towns, mm-hmm. like leaving the urban for the small town where you can finally discover yourself, get away from the hustle and bustle. Reese Witherspoon, leave behind your fashion career in New York and come on home to Alabama, y'all. Have some sweet tea and fall in love. Yeah, where she's able to finally dust off that city living, which is clearly false. It's a false performance of whatever to find her true roots in rural America, which is like so patronizing. It's so like... But is that not just a rehashing of the idea we talked about from It Happened One Night and similar movies from the 30s and 40s where, like, the rich heiress learns about herself by either having to be poor and give up her money or Claudette Colbert and It Happened One Night takes this cross-country train journey and and realizes that, you know, the common man is so much better. Yeah, it's like rediscovering these kind of homey values. Right, which are portrayed in films like this as so much more superior and more valuable than anything she could have possibly learned as a business owner in a city. Because that's an authentic woman, you know, close to the home. (sighs) And in the following year, we have another update, but this one, an update on uh, Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew with 
Deliver Us from Eva with Gabrielle Union playing the titular role of Eva, who is a bossy perfectionist. Yeah. And if only she had LL Cool J to come in and put her set her right. Oh, LL. Um, and then 2007's Knocked Up, which has had so much controversy or will had so much controversy around it because of star Katherine Heigl's comments in Vanity Fair. So in the movie, she's a journalist. She has a slacker boyfriend in Seth Rogen, and he basically kind of ends up the hero almost for his evolution. Like he becomes more responsible and like decides that he wants to help be a father. Right? Like, that's kind of how it goes. Yeah. I mean, well, he's not even, he becomes her boyfriend, but she becomes pregnant after a one night stand with him. Yeah. And she realizes it and is like, oh, this, this guy, you know, got me pregnant. I'm going to keep it. Dot, 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 which was the point in the film when I was like, huh. Okay. So right off the bat, we have, um, let's call it, an interesting choice uh-huh. made uh, by uh, Heigl's, you know, very conventionally attractive, very successful, very put together character. Um, and then she's like, OK, yes, yeah, Seth Rogen, you you and I would never date in real life, but uh, let's let's make this thing happen. Yeah, and she told Vanity Fair that she thought the movie was a little sexist, claiming that it paints the women as shrews there we have it as humorless and uptight and it paints the men as lovable goofy fun loving guys she was basically blacklisted from hollywood after that yeah although, i remember when that happened although true st- story full disclosure i never liked her uh because of her Grey's anatomy character Ooh. i just like haven't been able to i just so uh, if you had to go so if you had to spend the day with either katherine heigl or harry connick jr caroline oh lord who would it be Oh, she's really thinking hard, folks. I guess Catherine Heigl. Oh, because Harry Connick Jr. There's just something about him that's so weird to me. But I do agree with her assertion about the women in Knocked Up being portrayed as shrews. Because, yeah, she's humorless. But also Leslie Mann, who plays Paul Rudd's wife, Mm -hmm. is similarly, you know, just always having to keep. Paul Rudd in line, whereas the guys are, you know, laid back and funny and they go to Cirque du Soleil on mushrooms and it's hilarious. Well, there is something about Judd Apatow movies that leave a bad taste in my mouth because he they seem to be very um, preachy about setting women right, having them make the quote unquote better woman choice, like even even um, Trainwreck. I hated Trainwreck. Because even though, like, if that was a real-life person, if she were your friend in real life, you would applaud Amy Schumer's character for making better life choices. But it was such, to me, a cinematic cop-out because it's like, oh, no, good, everything's set right with the world where the woman is choosing the relationship rather than remaining single. And so it's amazing to me, like, when I watch Girls, for instance, which Judd Apatow has a hand in, like, I'm so glad that Hannah Horvath is allowed to be as terrible as she is. Yeah, I mean, I... A train wreck aside, I think that his uh, comedies are often more about the men and women are just like things for them to kind of bounce off of. Yeah. And just about arrested development mm-hmm. and the fear of aging. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there there's definitely some 
one dimensionality that that often happens. Um, although it's not obviously it's not just Avatar. Oh, I mean, no, it's, it's the genre in general, because you have to have some kind of conflict. Mm-hmm. You have to have foils and then you have to have some type of happy ending. <laughs> Although, of course, there's the, the ending in Knocked Up, which is um, very graphic and it is a crowning <laughs> in a in a delivery room. <laughs> so moving on from that, pivoting away from that, um, I feel like the proposal from 2009 starring Sandra Bullock is like the quintessential yes. working woman yes. film because she is icy she has those business suits and those stilettos and she, you know, just tells Ryan Reynolds what to do to the point of saying, yes, you're going to pretend that we are getting married. Right. Yeah. No, I live. This is the movie I think about when I think about this genre. Uh, I think I watched it at home with my mother as she dozed on the couch. Uh, and it it was I think my face was stuck in a perma like sneer watching it because it's it follows that formula where the icy career woman like encounters an actual loving family who genuinely care for each other and they're earnest in their love and you know she's finally thawed by Mary Steenburgen and the guy who plays Coach from Coach or the guy who plays uh the granddad in Parenthood sure I've actually never seen Parenthood. Ooh, listeners. Um, but yeah, she she finally was like, oh, this is what love is supposed to be. And so then she's thawed by Ryan Reynolds, too. Whew. Well, he, he does more than just thaw me. Hmm. Hi-o. <laughs> um, what I didn't realize, though, I hadn't put together before reading for this episode, Caroline, was how uh, I, I think that it came out. Yeah, it came out before the proposal, two weeks notice. Also starring Sandra Bullock. Oh, yeah. And she is also an ambitious working woman who has no social life. But it's because she is the Ryan Reynolds to Hugh Grant's billionaire, like the, you know, zany billionaire character. Now, of course, you know, being the uh, like over involved boss is portrayed as like lovable. With Hugh Grant. And of course, they start, you know, they end up falling in love. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, but it's funny to see that she's played sort of both sides yeah. of this this trope. I do love Sandra Bullock, though. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's a terrific oh, rom-com leading lady. Um, and I also, though, didn't realize I had I haven't seen this. Um, but I, th- I think if you watch the trailer, you've kind of seen the whole thing. But uh, New in Town starring um, Renee Zellweger. In a very non-Bridget Jones type of role, which I think it came out around the time as the proposal because. Oh, I've never heard of it. She's got the pencil skirts. She's got the stilettos. Mm-hmm. You know, she, they have the boardroom scene where, you know, she's, she's the lone woman and she ends up having to go to Minnesota, small town, leave mm-hmm. the city for a small town where she meets. Wait for it, Caroline. Harry Connick Jr. (laughs) But in the end, she is able to uh, to have the job, to have the guy and the small town. She ends up relocating to Minnesota, but she becomes the uh, again, spoiler alert. She becomes the CEO of the company that she was first sent there to manage. Yeah. okay. I do remember like I'm I'm vaguely remembering 
knowing about this storyline, but I've never seen the movie. Like, I literally have no picture in my head of it. I mean, I feel like it's it's pretty much just a Midwestern version of The Proposal. Sort With of a, Harry a, little bit, Jr. a little bit of a knockoff. Um, so, I mean, all that to say that, I mean, there, there's very much a, a formula to this. Yeah. So we mentioned earlier in the podcast the, quote, career woman comedy cycle. This was a term coined by, I can only assume her last name is pronounced Glitter, uh, Katrina Glitter. Uh, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, but it seems magical. Well, also, yeah, because it's spelled G-L-I-T-R-E. And yes, I, 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 I'm going to call it Glitter, too. Yeah. Yeah. So so Miss Glitter uh, talks about how in the late 30s, we get the emergence of this career woman cycle with 1939's Double Wedding and the film Honeymoon in Bali. And this subgenre peaked around 1941 or 42, declined through the war, but then saw a revival in the wake of World War II. And that should be clicking in your brain with what we said around the top of the podcast about anxieties around women in the workplace. And again, this genre does involve the good old battle of the sexes and the source of conflict rather than the later screwball genre that we would see. Or or I guess the screwball genre starts to starts here as well. But this is different. This well, is, this is this is post screwball because screwballs more 30s. Right. OK. And then I mean, basically, the screwball genre like couldn't survive in a wartime climate. Right, that's what it was. Yeah, because it was so yeah, it was so effervescent. So you have egalit- heiresses, so egalitarian. Yeah, yeah. People were like, I don't want to see that happiness and joy and equality. Um, but and- you also have women going to work. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the big thing. Exactly, exactly. And so, rather than though the conflict being all of the witty repartee between the man and the woman in the lead roles, the source of the conflict in these career woman comedies is the woman's career and the disproportionate energy and time she puts into it, meaning that while the woman might be in a position of authority, the film is warning us that her success in the man's world comes at a high cost, and that cost is a social life, and that cost is a love life. And so we just see this heroine sort of struggling in an unnatural gendered position, basically. Well, and as Glitter also underscores in her book, it's not just the job that that's the problem. I mean, it's it's the woman herself is the problem, kind of like uh, J-Lo in The Wedding Planner, where she literally needs to be saved from herself because her life has just become nothing. It's she's, become nothing but a job. She's planning too many events. <laughs> too many weddings. Um, so the guy comes in to solve this problem, which is not... How do we become, you know, better people together? But rather, oh, how can I become a better woman that more people like? How can I become kinder to my family members and more liked by my coworkers or underlings and also sexually attractive to this dude? Yeah. And so Glitter writes about what is natural and positive in men, which is power leadership becomes unnatural and negative in women, signifying things like frigidity and repressed maternal emotions. Like if only she were more feminine and she could have all the babies. Uh, and the woman ends up in these films adopting a more submissive role 
which Glitter points out is like, is this not her just performing femininity, which is unnatural for for this character, for this person? Um you know, therefore acknowledging the error of her ways in ever, in ever having performed anything other than true, pure femininity. Well, and speaking of true, pure femininity, this is where we start to see that contrast really solidify between the working woman, a la Sandra Bullock and the proposal versus a working girl who I would say that Meg Ryan and You've Got Mail is, while she is a a business owner. She's more of the working girl because she's not competitive, mm. you know, with Joe Fox, a.k.a. Tom Hanks. Um, I don't know that you can a.k.a. someone's actual name, <laughs> by the way. Also known as. Sure. <laughs> yes, sure. Um, but yeah, so you have the more palatable working girls in similar career focused movies where it's more the, the job is kind of just convenient. It provides a meet cute. Or it just kind of gives her something to do, fleshes out her character a little bit. But mm-hmm. it's not the the central, you know, like the, the crux of her character. It's not the driving force of the romance. Um, so with working girls, you tend to have more secretaries, shop assistants, waitresses, essentially any non-threatening jobs. Mm-hmm. Also food service. Uh, baking, these, these kinds of, these more domestic types of work. Yeah, things that are an acceptable substitute for the inevitable and eventual real job, which is being a wifey at home, something that can easily just be set aside because she has no real true career ambitions of her own anyway. So maybe she was just doing it to make some extra money until she found that Prince Charming and a relationship that existed both on screen and off screen that is actually such a wonderful illustration of this whole like punish the career woman theme is the one between Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. So earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that uh, Catherine Hepburn's Woman of the Year came out in 1942. And as we learned from Ms. Glitter, who, Caroline, I'm going to go ahead and say that she's my favorite scholar, (laughs) or at least my favorite (laughs) scholar name at this point. Um, (laughs) Ms. Glitter talks about how this role was part of Catherine Hepburn's off-screen comeback plan. Yeah. Oh, so fascinating. So uh, Catherine Hepburn, you know, who was very uh, non-traditional. She wore pants. She wore pants. And she was a handsome woman. She was a handsome woman. She really was. Um, And and yes, I have heard you listeners who responded to our uh, Prince episode. We will do uh, an episode on Catherine Hepburn and her mother one of these days. Um, So anyway, yeah, she had a string of flops. She's like, how do I... Get control back over my career. Well, she ends up taking the reins behind the scenes. She makes 1940s The Philadelphia Story, the play version of which was written for her, and she secured the film rights, and 1942's Woman of the Year, which, Glitter says, demonstrate this conscious effort on Hepburn's part to reclaim her star persona by assimilating her otherness into the patriarchy. Wow. Okay, translate, please. Basically, uh, in these roles, Catherine Hepburn becomes that career woman. She's beautiful. She's smart. 
She's powerful, but she's not hyper feminine and she's not hyper maternal. And thank God, masculine, chin clefted Spencer Tracy comes along to set her straight. And an irony that Glitter does point out, though, about these roles is that Hepburn, traditionally, you know, wearing the pants, actually never looks more feminine than she does in these roles. You know, in, in one of them, I can't remember, I think it's Woman of the Year, she's wearing this gorgeous dress, this flowy, black, puffy, puffy concoction. But at the same time that she's wearing it, she's also exhibiting super, like, anti-maternal tendencies. She doesn't want to stay home to take care of the refugee child she and Sam have adopted. And she's leaving the man in the feminine role of caring for the child while she goes out to accept an award. And so even in that movie, Spencer Tracy's character even tells her she's not a woman anymore, even though, as Glitter points out, she's literally like the most feminine looking she's ever looked in this role because she's so she's trying so hard to drive home like, no, look at me. I can conform to these image standards, these optics that are set forth for this industry. Meanwhile, I mean, that is a an interesting like one two punch with Philadelphia Story and Woman of the Year, because Philadelphia Story, while yes, we are in the, you know, the waning days of screwball, it is more of a screwball comedy where she plays more of an heiress type, but she does look dazzling throughout the whole thing. I mean, she's basically in like an evening gown the whole time. And you have Cary Grant yet again, like coming in um, who romances her for the second time. If you haven't seen it, it's fabulous. Um, so I wonder if that was also an appealing contrast, you know, to kind of have like both of the um, both of those types of characters played in such quick succession. Yeah. And I mean, Woman of the Year really is a a perfect example of this career woman comedy with the woman having to then conform to the man's expectations and points of view. I mean, her character Tess and his character Sam get married after a whirlwind romance. But, you know, Tess, she knows nothing about how to take care of a man. And she ends up putting her career first, which drives Sam away. And then she goes to her father's wedding. She has this epiphany about the true meaning of marriage and commitment and romance. She tries to make amends uh, to Sam by cooking for him, but she fails because what? If, she's a hapless homemaker. She can't cook breakfast. And he finally, though, decides to stay. And critic James Agee, writing about this film, wrote, For once, strident Catherine Hepburn is properly subdued. Whoa. Yeah, man. Jeez. Wow. Well, and... What a contrast, too, to 1940s, not Philadelphia Story starring Catherine Hepburn, but uh, His Girl Friday, which mm-hmm. is another love story between two journalists, which, of course, you know, elevates Hildy, the crackerjack reporter. But in this one, Spencer Tracy, more of the slob, is a sports reporter, and she's the, you know, the the sharp columnist. And her career, you know, is kind of taken down a peg. That's the problem rather than the solution. Mm-hmm. But what is happening off screen, too, is Catherine Hepburn's friends being surprised that she also seemed to willingly and lovingly play a more submissive role in her and Spencer Tracy's off screen romance. 
Yes, yes. And so Glitter points out that her career parallels the structure of the career woman comedy. You have this unfeminine, ambitious woman who's tamed by the love of a strong man. But the taming, so to speak, is is a ruse because it was Catherine who was pulling all the strings. She's the one who cast Cary Grant in Philadelphia Story. She specifically wanted him for that role. She was she was no slouch. In the business department, um, the business department where you go and you buy your business and and you have you have it picked out for you. Um, Still trying to find that department. I always get lost on the way. I know. I know. I get lost in the sandwich department. But um, Glitter writes that by acting out her subordination on screen, Hepburn regains her power off screen. Such interesting, contrasting dynamics. I mean, really having talking about gaming the system and by the system, I do mean the patriarchy. I want that as a T-shirt. Catherine Hepburn, like gaming the system. I don't know. Somebody who's funnier can can or an artist can do that. Um, But, you know, we have the same cycle, basically, of people being afraid of career women again in the 1980s, really through through now. And this is something that Emory professor Michelle Schreiber writes about in her book, American Post-Feminist Cinema, Women, Romance and Contemporary Culture. She calls 1980 to 2012 the post-feminist romance cycle that reflects not only contemporary women's anxieties about their multifaceted roles at home, in the workplace, whatever, but also anxieties about women. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, and in a more sociopolitical context, you have the rise of neoliberalism. And as that applies to feminism, this is when things become more self-centered in a way, all about choice. And you're on your own and it's up to you to empower yourself and climb that ladder. Um, and it's a time when, too, when feminism gets commodified, which may or may not be why a lot of these leading women also, you know, lead very like comparatively lavish lives on yeah, screen. All the writers have giant uh, apartments in New York. They all have killer wardrobes. You get a movie like Confessions of a Shopaholic, which gag may speaking of the 90s. But one quick note, Caroline, about neoliberalism and rom-coms, which that's a sentence I've never said. <laughs> before um, that I read in a book by Betty Kaklamanadu called Genre, Gender and the Effects of Neoliberalism is how in this uh, in this era, there aren't as many female sidekicks like Sandra Bullock Mm. in The Proposal doesn't have a a sassy sidekick, obviously, because sister's doing it for herself. Yeah. Which I was like, oh. Oh, that's interesting to think about. Yeah, because in um, Sleepless in Seattle and When Harry Met Sally, just for instance, those are two that have great, uh, like, whole sidekick storylines. Those sidekicks play a huge role. But it seems like it's it's and we still see sidekicks today, of course, but it's when you have the films that are more like um, a uh, new to town Proposal, et cetera. Um, Mm -hmm. With the career woman, because Sleepless in Seattle, Meg Ryan's not the ambitious career woman in that movie. And she's not the ambitious career woman in When Harry Met Sally. She's just, you know, your average Jane. Yeah. And but it seems like, yeah, when you make that crossover to no, she's, you know, head of the board or whatever. Like she's probably a feminist. That means she has no women friends. Interesting. So many layers. 
so many layers. I, you know, I never thought about that. That's a good point. Catmandu. Cacklemanadu. Yep. Uh, Xanadu. Um, sorry, I'm not making fun of your name. It's just like I'm doing word association. I can't stop. But Schreiber, so Schreiber points to this whole like neoliberalism, post-feminism, so to speak, era uh, as the source of consumable fictional characters being served up to women rather than real feminist leaders. So rather than having a Gloria Steinem as a feminist figurehead, you get like an Ally McBeal who's not real. She's a concocted creation of what powerful women are supposed to look like, question mark? Well, and I think it's the post-feminist powerful woman, because especially if we talk about Ally McBeal, the first thing I thought about when you were saying that in this context is the Time magazine cover that yes. came out with Feminism is Dead, Ally McBeal's face. Yeah, because her whole thing is like, yes, she's an attorney, but she also wears those micro skirts, lots of makeup. She's always and like, she's a mess. She's a wreck. And she's always in some like falling apart relationship and she's falling apart. And her mouth is always slightly open. You're right. You're right. Um, But br- I mean, bringing us full circle, she's married to Harrison Ford in real life. So, um, wow. So you really can have it all. Let's have Calissa Flockhart on the show. I know. I, I did actually want to bring up the idea of having it all because that's what these movies, as Schreiber points out, in this era are trying to tell us almost. Like, you don't need feminism anymore. We're past all that mess. Like, you can wear the short skirt and have Prince Charming come save you and still work really hard and be the the chairwoman of the board or the CEO Um, And, you know, even if you haven't frozen your eggs and you're still trying to make partner, you can still have the perfect life now, now that Prince Charming is here. And and that's anxiety inducing, because as we I feel like as we've talked before, there's no such thing as having it all, doing it all, whatever. Well, and it's also uh, it seems like the men in these movies by this point are not as threatened by a woman's career. There's just that aspect of like she just has to be feminized more in some kind of way. She can keep working. But yeah. she just needs to she just needs that gingham caftan, Caroline. Right. And I mean, Schreiber told Huffington Post that, quote, nobody knows what to do with women after feminism because we are, quote, post feminism. You have to have a leading lady in a role where she has clearly benefited from feminism. She's a career woman. She's independent. She really lives by herself, makes her own money, all that jazz. But she still has to have that romantic love she has to end up even if she's put it off to pursue the career she still has to end up in that long-term partnership well and i think an interesting example of that idea on screen is no strings attached starring natalie portman Mm. and a handsome man it's not justin timberlake because he stars he's in the other one with yeah mila kunis in basically the exact same movie isn't it ashton kutcher it is ashton kutcher i was like she said handsome man she can't mean ashton kutcher (laughs) ashton kutcher yeah so natalie portman plays this uh this no-nonsense doctor which is one of the approved roles for uh, leading women in romantic comedies. Um, and very much in a quote-unquote post-feminist sense, like she doesn't, you know, she's living on her own, she's successful, and 
she thinks she doesn't even need a monogamous relationship. So she's even just like having sex. And that's even a, a, one of the newest developments in the genre, too. It's oh, like yeah. women like a train wreck of like women openly having sex lives, but then being taught that, oh, actually monogamy is better. It's not even necessarily marriage. It's just monogamy. Yeah, you better straighten yourself out, sister. Whew. Get off that man train. Um, what about the man drain? <laughs> Does the man drain lead to the man train? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's where they end up. And Tamar Jeffers McDonald, who's another one of those rom-com scholars we cited earlier, points out that, you know, we're at a time when most women are in the out of the home workforce. But career women in rom-coms are generally portrayed as incompetent, like we mentioned earlier, cruel. Or both. You're incompetent and you're cruel. And she writes that she finds it quite insulting that a career woman now is something that is so frowned upon. She says that these roles are basically punishing the character for being as out there and powerful and ambitious as she is. And that uh, clearly you may be at the top of your job, but what you actually need is a man, preferably a husband. Although... Again, I would I would respond to McDonald, who I don't I don't know when McDonald wrote that, but I would argue that in 2016, when we are recording this, I would strike the husband. I don't even think that the rom-com goal anymore is necessarily a husband because we're delaying marriage longer than ever before. Right. But it's still just like some kind of coupling, you know, right. some kind of stable uh, relationship where you, you go to dinner. Yeah. Now the, yeah, that's the, that's the end is you finally get to go out for Chinese. Um, yeah, but I mean, the, the rom-coms still exist to alleviate the modern woman's anxiety at putting off marriage and commitment. Like, Hey, it's okay if you've been pursuing a career all these years or getting your master's or whatever. Um, like, don't worry as, as we'll show you in this movie, Prince Charming, uh, Harry Connick Jr. is still right around the corner. Well, and I wonder, too, if there's uh, in more recent films an anxiety coming through, too, over not just gender roles, but also technology, which mm-hmm. I know, curveball. Um, but I'm just thinking about just the montage of woman in rom-com in stilettos, like marching down the sidewalk, talking into a cell phone or texting and not looking mm-hmm. at anything around her. And that optic right there is our audience cue that she's not really engaged in her life. You know, things are just passing her by. She's so focused. She's missing everything around her. You know what I want to see? What? I want to see a movie like maybe nobody else would enjoy this, but I really would because I appreciate absurdity. I want to see a movie where the leading lady, like, like, let's say she's a scientist, right? She works in a lab and she's totally normal. She's totally average. She's good at her job. She has some friends that she goes out with on the weekend. But and, and, you know, she's living her life and she's fine. And like she dates sometimes and, and you know, she's she's totally fine. But everyone around her is still acting like all the tropey characters in a romantic comedy. So you've still got like Matthew McConaughey, like bumbling into her and trying to save her. You've still got like the sassy best friend who's lecturing her on like getting out there and all this stuff. So everybody's really absurdly crazy around her. But she's like, I'm just I'm just trying to get to work. I'm totally fine. Kind of like a almost a Daria in the middle of a of a 
bleep storm. And the end of the movie is her just breaking it off with a guy that she's been hooking up with a lot. And they're fine. And they're just like, OK, cool. Yeah, well, she's just over it. I'll see you around. Yeah, it's just fine. Yeah. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> Those are actually the closing words of the movie. That's the last line. No big deal. No big deal. See you later. Um, I would love to see that, too. <laughs> Who would play in the starring role? Oh, gosh. Ellen Page? Ellen Page could do it. Jenny Slate? Oh, Jenny Slate. Done. And she's just totally, I mean, you know, she's just totally fine. But one, okay, one thing I wanted to ask your opinion on, Caroline, mm-hmm. is sort of the the flip side of... The working woman who has to be softened and maybe her career focus just taken down a peg. She doesn't have to just <laughs> become jobless, <laughs> but um, obviously, you know, her success is too great. But then you also have more of the hapless, bumbling, working girl movie where her career is kind of in shambles. But then once she falls in love, then everything comes together. A la Kristen Wiig and Bridesmaids. She was mm. burned. She had the whole factor of uh, the hallmark of being burned by a former lover. Yes. And she is very clumsy. Yes. <laughs> um, has a meet cute, et cetera. But it's only after she gets that stabilizing factor of the relationship that she finally gets her, of course, bakery job um, back on track. <sighs> I yeah I, I well what is satisfying about things like that and I don't necessarily mean for me I just mean kind of in general is that uh in that storyline similar to Trainwreck everything is tied up very neatly everything is like set right we're like okay now she has a career but it is annoying that it takes the dude inspiring her indirectly in one way or another. It does take the dude for her to be like, oh, I guess I should do something with my life. Well, and I guess, too, uh, one big difference is that at the beginning of the movie, those characters aren't just like bogged down with all these stereotypically masculine traits. They're not unlikable to begin with. It's not yeah. really like the likability uh, makeover. Yeah, but she is a mess. She is a mess. That movie is the source of so many great gifts. And you know what, Caroline, I'm uh, speaking of gifts. I'm very glad that that 1930s <laughs> Taming of the Shrew movie that you mentioned earlier came out before the era of gifts. Yeah. That that would have the most horrifying gifts. Yeah. And thank goodness. Yeah. All of those animal storyline myth tropes from long, long ago were before media in general. Yeah, let's never bring those to screen. Let's don't bring people. Um, well, listeners, now we're curious to hear from you about this trope, um, because obviously it uh, there are many different versions of it from the ice queen all the way down to the hot mess who is sort of reformed in her work. And we want to know what you think about it, who your favorites are, who your least favorites are. Does Harry Connick Jr.'s neck also freak you out? It's really, I mean, it's his whole persona, to be honest. Like, let's not limit it to the neck. Um, MomStuff at AllStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you right now. So I'm going to start out this letter by saying I'm sure Harry Connick Jr. is a really nice person in real life. Well, anyway, I've got a letter here from Allison about our STD and STI testing episode. 
She says, thank you for your frank discussion of STIs. When I was in grad school, I went through a program to become an egg donor. I had gone through all six months of grueling applications, interviews, medical examinations, counseling sessions, meetings with geneticists, and many, many STI tests. After my information was put into a large binder of available donors, I was selected by a family almost immediately. After that, it was another grueling battery of medical examinations, STI tests, and at this point, hormone injections. It was a week before the egg harvesting when, upon walking into the office to pick up another pack of hormone injections, I was unceremoniously told by an office assistant that I had tested positive for syphilis and would be removed immediately from the program. There was no sit-down discussion or information provided me about treatment options. The level of shame and guilt and concern for my own health was devastating, not to mention the worry over the poor family who'd been planning on being pregnant by Christmas. I had no clue how I'd contracted it between all the other STI tests that had been performed at this very reputable Ivy League fertility clinic, considering I hadn't participated in any behaviors that would have put me at risk. When I was presented this information and pushed the subject, a doctor was called in who told me in no uncertain terms, the tests are virtually infallible. I must have contracted syphilis by engaging in some sort of irresponsible behavior. I went immediately from the clinic to student health, which was right down the road, and took another test, which 48 hours later had confirmed that the initial test was a false positive, and I did not, in fact, have syphilis. Before the results were back, they took time to sit down with me and explain that if I did test positive, I would be treated with a short course of penicillin. No shame, no guilt, no trauma. Needless to say, I had a meeting with the head of the fertility clinic to let her know of the poor care I'd received, and she issued an apology, but the scars I carry from that experience make STI testing an uncomfortable experience for me to this day. Dude, Allison, I'm so sorry. That's the worst. What a nightmare. Uh, Well, I have a letter here from Banana about our Hillary Clinton episode. Uh, Banana writes, I shared the episode with a secret pro-Hillary Facebook group I'm part of. I know there are many underground pro-Hillary groups out there because people are either actively getting shouted down by Bernie supporters on social media or are afraid to share their views in the first place. I've been pleasantly surprised by the level of discourse in this group, despite it being 2,500 members, all driven by word of mouth. Many people have expressed relief at having a space to share their opinions and discuss the election without fear of retribution. The group is mainly female, but there is an active contingent of men as well. Yay! It's interesting to me to witness the relief and joy new members express when they find us. I know you've done several episodes relating to women and online harassment, but it might be interesting to revisit this topic via the lens of the election. My own theory is that Hillary supporters, especially women, have been self-censoring on social media, given the hostility from both the right and even more sadly, the left. There was a long thread in our group of people telling their stories of quote unquote coming out as Hillary supporters on Facebook. People felt very real anxiety and fear of retaliation, but we've been urging each other to be more visible. One thing I hear pundits saying over and over again is that Hillary isn't inspiring enthusiasm, but I think they have it all wrong. In fact, I think she's inspiring quite a bit of bravery in her supporters. So I wanted to share Banana's letter because I know that we have a lot of listeners in our audience who support, you know, other presidential candidates, and I'm just curious to get, uh, other people's thoughts on the social media climate, especially when it comes to um, 
the reactions people get when they discuss supporting Hillary online because it's usually pretty harsh to put it lightly yelling a lot of yelling can have a chilling effect yes yes um so with that listeners we want to hear all of your thoughts momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address and our uh, rom-com summer series will continue we have more tropes to unpack or lack of tropes such as where are people of color in uh, rom-coms. And where are the gay people? Yes. Okay. Um, you can find links to all of our social media, all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts on our website. In the meantime, if you head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 